History of England, Chapter 11, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Jeremy Wine. History of England, from the accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter 11, Part 3. The naval administration and the financial administration were confided to boards. Herbert was first commissioner of the admiralty. He had in the late reign given up wealth and dignities when he found that he could not retain them with honor and with a good conscience. He had carried the memorable invitation to the Hague. He had commanded the Dutch fleet during the voyage from Hela Vutzlaus to Torbay. His character for courage and professional skill stood high. That he had had his follies and vices was well known but his recent conduct in the time of severe trial had atoned for all, and seemed to warrant the hope that his future career would be glorious. Among the commissioners who sat with him at the Admiralty were two distinguished members of the House of Commons, William Sacheverell, a veteran Whig, who had great authority in his party, and Sir John Lothar, an honest and very moderate Tory, who in fortune and parliamentary interest was among the first of the English gentry. Mordaunt, one of the most vehement of the Whigs, was placed at the head of the treasury, why it is difficult to say. His romantic courage, his flighty wit, his eccentric invention, his love of desperate risks and startling effects were not qualities likely to be of much use to him in financial calculations and negotiations. Delamere, a more vehement Whig, if possible than Mordaunt, sat second at the board, and was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Two Whig members of the House of Commons were in the commission. Sir Henry Capel, brother of that Earl of Essex who died by his own hand in the tower, and Richard Hampton, son of the great leader of the Long Parliament. But the commissioner on whom the chief weight of business lay was Godolphin. This man, taciturn, clear-minded, laborious, inoffensive, zealous for no government and useful to every government, had gradually become an almost indispensable part of the machinery of the state. Though a churchman, he had prospered in a court governed by Jesuits. Though he had voted for a regency, he was the real head of a treasury filled with Whigs. His abilities and knowledge, which had in the late reign supplied the deficiencies of Bellasis and Dover, were now needed to supply the deficiencies of Mordaunt and Delamere. There were some difficulties in disposing of the great seal. The king at first wished to confide it to Nottingham, whose father had borne it during several years with high reputation. Nottingham, however, declined the trust, and it was offered to Halifax, but was again declined. Both these lords doubtless felt that it was a trust which they could not discharge with honor to themselves, or with advantage to the public. In old times, indeed, the seal had been generally held by persons who were not lawyers. Even in the seventeenth century it had been confided to two eminent men, who never studied at any inn of court. Dean Williams had been Lord Keeper to James I. Shaftesbury had been Lord Chancellor to Charles II, but such appointments could no longer be made without serious inconvenience. Equity had been gradually shaping itself into a refined science, which no human faculties could master without long and intense application. Even Shaftesbury, vigorous as was his intellect, had painfully felt his want of technical knowledge, and, during the fifteen years which had elapsed since Shaftesbury had resigned the seal, technical knowledge had constantly been becoming more and more necessary to his successors. Neither Nottingham, therefore, 
though he had a stock of legal learning such as rarely found in any person who has not received a legal education, nor Halifax, though in the judicial sittings of the House of Lords, the quickness of his apprehension and the subtlety of his reasoning had often astonished the bar, ventured to accept the highest office which an English layman can fill. After some delay the seal was confided to a commission of eminent lawyers, with Maynard at their head. The choice of judges did honor to the new government. Every privy councillor was directed to bring a list. The lists were compared, and twelve men of conspicuous merit were selected. The professional attainments and Whig principles of Pollocksfin gave him pretensions to the highest place. But it was remembered that he had held briefs for the crown in the western counties at the assizes which followed the Battle of Sedgemoor. It seems, indeed, from the reports of the trials that he did as little as he could do if he held the briefs at all, and that he left to the judges the business of browbeating witnesses and prisoners. Nevertheless, his name was inseparably associated in the public mind with the bloody circuit. He, therefore, could not with propriety be put at the head of the first criminal court in the realm. After acting during a few weeks as Attorney-General, he was made Chief Justice of the Common Pleas. Sir John Holt, a young man but distinguished by learning, integrity, and courage, became Chief Justice of the King's Bench. Sir Robert Atkins, an eminent lawyer who had passed some years in rural retirement, but whose reputation was still great in Westminster Hall, was appointed Chief Baron. Powell, who had been disgraced on account of his honest declaration in favor of the bishops, again took his seat among the judges. Treby succeeded Pollocksfan as Attorney-General, and Summers was made solicitor. Two of the chief palaces in the royal household were filled by two English noblemen eminently qualified to adorn a court. The high-spirited and accomplished Devonshire was named Lord Steward. No man had done more or risked more for England during the crisis of her fate. In retrieving her liberties, he had retrieved also the fortunes of his own house. His bond for thirty thousand pounds was found among the papers which James had left at Whitehall, and was cancelled by William. Dorset became Lord Chamberlain, and employed the influence and patronage annexed to his functions, as he had long employed his private means, in encouraging genius and in alleviating misfortune. One of the first acts which he was under the necessity of performing must have been painful to a man of so generous a nature, and of so keen a relish for whatever was excellent in arts and letters. Dryden could no longer remain poet laureate. The poet would not have borne to see any papist among the servants of their majesties, and Dryden was not only a papist but an apostate. He had moreover aggravated the guilt of his apostasy by calumniating and ridiculing the church which he had deserted. He had, it was facetiously said, treated her as the pagan persecutors of old treated her children. He had dressed her up in the skin of a wild beast, and then baited her for the public amusement. He was removed, but he received from the private bounty of the magnificent Chamberlain a pension equal to the salary which had been withdrawn. The deposed laureate, however, as poor of spirit as rich in intellectual gifts, continued to complain piteously, year after year, of the losses which he had not suffered, till at length his wailings drew forth expressions of well-merited contempt from brave and honest Jacobites, who had sacrificed everything to their principles, without deigning to utter one word of deprecation or lamentation. In the royal household were placed some of those Dutch nobles who stood highest in the favor of the king. Bentinck had the greatest office of groom of the stole, with a salary of five thousand pounds a year. Zulestein took charge of the robes. The master of the horse was Overkirky, 
a gallant soldier who united the blood of Nassau to the blood of Horn, and who wore, with just pride, a costly sword presented to him by the States-General in acknowledgment of the courage with which he had, on the bloody day of St. Denis, saved the life of William. The place of Vice-Chamberlain to the Queen was given to a man who had just become conspicuous in public life, and whose name will frequently recur in the history of this reign. John Howe, or as he was more commonly called Jack Howe, had been sent up to the convention by the borough of Cirenchester. His appearance was that of a man whose body was worn by the constant workings of a restless and acrid mind. He was tall, lean, pale with a haggard, eager look, expressive at once of flightiness and of shrewdness. He had been known during several years as a small poet, and some of the most savage lampoons which were handed about the coffee-houses were imputed to him. But it was in the House of Commons that both his parts and his ill-nature were most signally displayed. Before he had been a member three weeks, his volubility, his asperity, and his pertinacity had made him conspicuous. Quickness, energy, and audacity, united, soon raised him to the rank of a privileged man. His enemies, and he had many enemies, said that he consulted his personal safety even in his most petulant moods, and that he treated soldiers with a civility which he never showed to ladies or to bishops. But no man had, in larger measure, that evil courage which braves and even courts disgust and hatred. No decencies restrained him. His spite was implacable. His skill in finding out the vulnerable parts of strong minds was consummate. All his great contemporaries felt his sting in their turns. Once it inflicted a wound which deranged even the stern composure of William, and constrained him to utter a wish that he were a more private gentleman, and could invite Mr. Howe to a short interview behind Montague House. As yet, however, Howe was reckoned among the most strenuous supporters of the new government, and directed all his sarcasms and invectives against the malcontents. The subordinate places in every public office were divided between the two parties, but the Whigs had the larger share. Some persons, indeed, who did little honor to the Whig name, were largely recompensed for services which no good man would have performed. Wildman was made postmaster general. A lucrative sinecure in the excise was bestowed upon Ferguson. The duties of the solicitor of the treasury were both important and very invidious. It was the business of that officer to conduct political prosecutions, to collect the evidence, to instruct the counsel for the crown, to see that the prisoners were not liberated on insufficient bail, to see that the juries were not composed of persons hostile to the government. In the days of Charles and James, the solicitors of the treasury had been with too much reason accused of employing all the vilest artifices of chicanery against men obnoxious to the court. The new government ought to have made a choice which was above all suspicion. Unfortunately, Mordaunt and Delamere pitched upon Aaron Smith, an acrimonious and unprincipled politician, who had been the legal adviser of Titus Oates in the days of the Popish plot, and who had been deeply implicated in the Rye House plot. Richard Hampton, a man of decided opinions but of moderate temper, objected to this appointment. His objections, however, were overruled. The Jacobites, who hated Smith and had reason to hate him, affirmed that he had obtained his place by bullying the lords of the treasury, and particularly by threatening that, if his just claims were disregarded, he would be the death of Hampton. End of chapter 11, part 3